rest of us can turn together to the book of Daniel, chapter 11. As you can no doubt see, if you turn the page, chapter 11 of Daniel is perhaps the longest chapter in the book. It's quite a lengthy chapter. So what I would like to do is begin by reading the first nine verses, and then we'll pick up the text uh, as we go through it. If you'd please give attention to the reading of God's Word. It is authoritative. It is sufficient. It is inerrant. Daniel chapter 11. Verse 2. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. After some years they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up, and her attendants, he who fathered her, and he who supported her in those times. And from, a branch, and, a, and from a branch from her, root shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north. And he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods, with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask this morning that you would show us your truth, that you would show us your magnificence, your sovereignty, and your love for your people. We ask all of this, O Lord, in the matchless name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, have you heard the phrase, out of the frying pan into the fire? That's a bit like where we are this morning in Daniel. You may recall that I said that there was a famous uh, comment about the end of Daniel 9, that it was a virtual swamp of exegesis. Well, Daniel 11 has been described by a great Lutheran commentator in this fashion. We do not see how it could possibly be used for a sermon or sermons. <laughs> Inspiring great confidence in the preacher. And if you have looked through this passage at any time in your life, you see how long of a passage it is, how much incredible detail there is. You may have wondered, why would there be so much detail of history? 
As a matter of fact, the fact that there is so much detail has convinced critical scholars, those who don't believe that the Bible is the Word of God, that Daniel had to be written in about 150 B.C. and that Daniel didn't write it. Because, of course, there's no way Daniel could write this much that could come true two, three, four hundred years later. Well, everyone knows that's impossible, right? But what's impossible with man is possible with God. And that's part of the reason we have this text before us this morning, to show us the power and wisdom of God. But there is more than this. God is doing more than just merely showing us that he knows and is in control of the future. He is also desiring to teach his people, to comfort them. And so even as we look back thousands of years upon this text, we can be blessed by it in God's purpose. And so what we are going to look at here is how history is dealt with in the Bible, specifically here in Daniel chapter 11. The first thing that we will see is a glimpse of history. We'll go down through the ages and see how Daniel 11, Daniel 11 relates to history. And it will be a whirlwind tour, but we will see it. Secondly, and I think more importantly, we will see lessons we can learn from history. So we won't just simply look at history. We will attempt to learn lessons from God's history. And then finally, we will see the culmination of history at the end of this chapter. And what God is building up throughout this entire chapter to tell us. A glimpse of history, lessons from history, and then, of course, the culmination of history. Let's begin then by looking at a glimpse of history. First, we get a bit of a preview of what is happening historically. And I want us to think about a few parameters. The first thing is, is that as we view this portion of Daniel, which is a prophecy, we need to get out of our minds that prophecy is just history told beforehand. That's actually the least of it. Really, in reality, prophecy is God's interpretation of history. He says it beforehand, but he lets us know what he thinks is important, what he wants us to focus upon. And so not every detail is listed. It's what God wants us to look at. And so we see again, for example, Alexander the Great, who needs a new press agent. Because in this long chapter, he receives but two to three verses. As far as God's concerned, he's not really Alexander the Great. He's more like Alex the Small. He's not really that important in God's view of history. And today, this is important to have God's view of history, especially because we are constantly bombarded by news, aren't we? We turn on the television, and news is there. We turn on the radio and news is there. We turn on the internet, and news is there. And over and over again, we are bombarded with images, images that make it seem like what is happening right here and now is so monumentally important that nothing else can be of any concern. This can happen with the ridiculous, like when something happens to the latest movie star. At every channel that you watch, every newspaper you open is about this movie star what clothes they wore, or how they were sick, or why they didn't take this movie, or what's happening in their marriage. 
We can also even see it with more substantive events. Those of you that are old enough to remember other wars beyond the Iraq War know what this is like. The coverage in Vietnam, but even more so the coverage in Korea. Or what about the coverage of World War II? You couldn't get an update of the latest casualty lists. You had to wait a week or a month for a newsreel to come in and be shipped. Nowadays, I turned on my computer, and I was already told when the first casualty in the offensive that happened yesterday in Afghanistan occurred. And so these constant images are bombarding us, and it is very difficult to figure out what is really important, because it seems like we're told that everything is important all the time. So this is the context, a preview of what we see in history. Next, we see that there is a panoramic view of history laid out before us. I was asked earlier this morning, how much time does Daniel 11 cover? I said, well, it's probably two, three hundred years, maybe. That's a very long time, longer than the history of our nation. And it begins here in verse 2. We're told that three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And the nature of this chapter is such that the details allow us to fill in the gaps. Who are these three kings? Well, I can tell you that their names are Cambyses, Smyrdas, and Darius the Great. And then I can tell you that the fourth king that arose was Xerxes. And you know Xerxes. He's also given the name Ahasuerus. And he's a husband of Esther. But he is also known for being the wealthiest of the Persian kings and for using all of his wealth to raise up an empire to attack Greece, even as it is said here. And when he has become strong in his riches, then he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. This is exactly what Xerxes did. And if you read accounts from classical history, you will see that there were Parthians and Medes and Persians and Syrians and Egyptians and Libyans all gathered together in one massive army by the wealth of Xerxes to attack Greece. If you're a student of history, then you also know in 480 B.C., Xerxes and his army and his navy were defeated at the Battle of Salamis. It is called the battle that saved Western civilization. And from that point on, the Persian Empire began decline. Its decline was so certain and so swift that we don't even deal with other kings because in verse 5, then another king comes onto the scene, a mighty king. We might even say in the Hebrew, a warrior king, a strong king. And this king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he is arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided. And this is, of course, Alexander the Great, who was known for his physical strength, who was known for the fact that he personally led every cavalry charge in his battles. And he was a great king. And he did, it seemed, whatever he wanted to do, conquered wherever he would go. His only regret, his only defeat, was that there were no worlds left to conquer before he died. And then he did indeed die, and his kingdom was divided into four pieces. His posterity, his two sons were murdered. His wife was murdered. His mother was murdered. And his kingdom was divided amongst four generals, and it no longer became the same empire as it was when he was in control. These four kings of various parts of the empire 
In Syria and Babylon, the Seleucids. In Egypt, Ptolemy. In Asia Minor, Antigonus. And in Greece, Cassander. Struggled a bit. And after a very short period of time, there remained really but two main powers from Greece. That is, the king of the south, or Egypt, Ptolemy, and the king of the north, or Syria and Babylon, the Seleucids. Now, what you need to know is, is that in this dizzying amount of details, it's very difficult to follow who is who, partly because the history is difficult to follow. Every single king of Egypt is called Ptolemy. So we have Ptolemy the first, and the second, and the third, and the fourth, and the fifth, and the sixth. They're a little bit more into variety in Asia and in Babylon. They sort of switch between Seleucus and Antiochus. And so you have Seleucus the second, and then Antiochus the second, and then Seleucus the third, and Antiochus the third. But in the main, these dynasties hold together and pursue the same policies. It's one of the reasons why Daniel can speak about them as the king of the north and the king of the south. Now, just to give you a flavor of the scope of how Daniel predicts history, let me give you just two or three minutes with the details from the text and telling you how that matches up with the details of history. Kids, there'll be a quiz later. So mark down your verses. We see here in verse 5, The king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. Seleucus, king of Babylon and Asia Minor, Syria, was thrown off the throne and he fled to, can you guess where? Egypt, to the king of the south. And he became a prince or a ruler under the first Ptolemy until such a time as Ptolemy placed him back on his throne and he went out as a prince and founded an empire that was about three to four times the size of Ptolemy's Egypt. And then in verse 6 we see, After some years they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm. You see, like often happens, these two kingdoms have decided that they would perhaps be more powerful if they were united. And the easy way to unite a kingdom is through marriage. You marry a husband and a wife, one from each kingdom, and then the son rules both. And so King Ptolemy decided this was his way to bring Syria and Babylon under his control. And he sent his daughter, Bernice, Berenice, to go up and marry the king of Syria. There was only one slight problem. The king already had a wife, and she wasn't too pleased with this arrangement. And she responded by poisoning Berenice and by poisoning their young son, by taking their strength away, and by putting her family back on the throne, exactly as, as is described here. And what would happen in a situation like that? Well, Berenice's father dies, and her brother the king's son comes to the throne, one who is from her roots. And you can imagine what he thinks about this whole situation. Murder my sister, will you? I'll raise an army. And that's exactly what he does. He shall come against the army and against the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. And that is exactly what he did. 
he avenged his sister and attacked and conquered portions of the king of the north. And then in verse 10, the son of the king of the north shall wage war and assemble a great multitude of forces. After having had some defeats, the king's sons, which include Antiochus III, known as the Great, they then raise their own armies and they go off against Egypt. And they make raids into his territories. And then in verse 11, the king of the south, the king of Egypt, is moved with rage. And he shall come out and fight against the king of the north. And he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. So King Ptolemy now comes and wins a great victory at a town called Raphia. But this is not the end of the battle, because in verse 15 we see, Then the king of the north shall come and throw a siege works and take a well-fortified city. And the forces of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. And so Antiochus III comes back down into Egypt and now defeats Ptolemy again. And you can imagine, you're probably already getting dizzy from back and forth and back and forth. But all the details are there. We'll talk about the back and the forth in a minute. And then Antiochus III decides that he'll do the old Ptolemy marriage trick. Look at verse 17. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring the terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. And so Antiochus III sends his daughter down to marry the Egyptian king. But again, there's a problem here. When push comes to shove, she likes her husband more than her father. And she sides with her husband and her son who is to rule Egypt. And she doesn't carry forward the intrigue. And so again, like almost like two animals circling, waiting to see who the first will attack, these kingdoms operate. In verse 18, Afterwards he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them. But a commander shall put an end to his insolence. He goes to the coastlands of Greece and, he, and Turkey and Asia Minor and he attacks them. And someone is in there his way. It is a leader, a Roman commander. And the, the history here is so accurate that the title of the Roman general is commander. Not the normal title of council. Not the normal title of prefect. He is called a legate, a commander. That's how accurate this history is. And then we see in verse 20 that this one shall arise in his place and shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of his kingdom. And this happens. The king of the north is short on cash because he's been defeated by Rome and so he taxes everyone as much as he possibly can. This is exactly what happens. This is a panoramic view of history spanning about 200 years And we come in verse 21 to in his place shall arise a corruptible person. Excuse me, a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. And this is a man we have met before. It is Antiochus IV. And he is not next in line to the throne, but he sneaks his way on. He jumps ahead of his nephew. He uses intrigue even though royal majesty was not to be given to him. And we see that perhaps one of the first things that he does is plan an attack on Egypt. Look at verse 25. 
and he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. Antiochus goes down into Egypt, and men who literally, as the text says, eat at the table, eat the food of the king of Egypt, betray him. His two closest advisors. And Antiochus is victorious. And then comes a period of an uneasy alliance described by Daniel in verse 27 as the kings sitting at the same table speaking lies. Have you ever watched negotiations between nations or seen people report about that? This is exactly what it's like. They sit around a table and they decide which lies they can tell. Because you see, if you tell a lie that someone already knows is a lie, you lose your advantage. So you have to be careful about how you lie. And anyone, even any child, knows that when you start to lie, it's a lot more work than telling the truth, right? Because you've got to remember everything that you've said. And you get tripped up. And then there is, of course, the obvious difficulty that your parents know everything. This is what happens also amongst nations. And then Antiochus begins a second attack here at verse 28. And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant. And he shall work his will and return to his own land. At the time appointed, he shall return and come to the south, but it shall not be as it was before. For ships of Kittim shall come against him and shall be afraid and withdraw and shall turn back and be enraged and shall take action against the holy covenant. So Antiochus begins the second attack against Egypt, the most famous story about that is that Rome begins to intervene. They don't want war in the region. And Rome has already beat him up pretty bad once in a, in a battle. And the Roman council says, I think you need to go back home and leave Egypt alone. And he says, well, I'll think about it. Give me some time to think about it. And being understanding how politicians work, the Roman council takes a stick and he draws a circle in the sand around him. And he says, I'll have your decision before you step out of the circle. Ptolemy, or excuse me, Antiochus knows he's bested. And he leaves. But he leaves in great anger. And it's that great anger from this history that perhaps you don't even know that causes him to invade Jerusalem on the Sabbath day and to butcher thousands and tens of thousands and to destroy the temple and to sacrifice a pig on the altar and to declare the holy temple of God the temple of Zeus the frustrated ambition of a madman taken out on the people of God. Does that sound familiar at all to you? Have you ever seen or heard of the church being abused by the frustrated ambition of politicians and kingdoms? You see, the world doesn't change. That's another thing that this text tells us. Well, this is a great sweep of history. But why does the Lord give us all of this? It's, I think, to teach us lessons. To teach us, secondly, lessons from history. And the first lesson is that the world is unstable. We need to understand this. We hear the back and the forth and the back and the forth, and we see that sometimes Syria is on top. Sometimes Egypt is on top. Sometimes they're about the same. 
But neither one is able to gain a complete victory. These two superpowers are not able to defeat each other. And this is often how history is in black and white. It is so much the case that when the Cold War ended, historians began to declare the end of history because they couldn't imagine a time in which there wouldn't be this back and forth, this ebb and flow. World kingdoms are unstable. Why are they unstable? Well, again, the text, I think, gives us insight to this, and that is that they are unstable because they have unstable gods. As a matter of fact, they have no gods. They have gods of silver and gold that have to be carried, and that can be carried off by the enemy and have no way to protect themselves. We're not talking about implements or instruments of a temple. We're talking about actual gods. Gold, silver statues that would be bowed down to and prayed to and treated as if they were gods. We also see that they're unstable because they do not follow God's ways. There is a reason why God gives us His law. There is a reason why it is wise for nations to follow the law of God. You see, each of these countries, each of these kingdoms, sows their own destruction in their intrigue, in their lying, in their immorality. Look at verse 6, there is intrigue in marriage. And again in verse 17, there is intrigue in marriage. In verse 23, we see that he shall act deceitfully. In verse 27, we see that they speak lies one to another. In verse 32, we see seduction with flattery. You see, this is how kingdoms build themselves up, but it is a house of cards. To live not according to God's law. And this is not just true of kingdoms. This is true of families, too. You cannot build a marriage on lies or deception. You may think it will keep it stable, and if you tell the truth, it will be too shaky and no one can handle it. But that's not what God's Word says. You cannot build a relationship with friends, with your parents or with your children, on deception. It is a shaky house of cards. And you see, all of these kingdoms then just come under God's judgment. The second lesson we learn is that resisting evil is important. You may have heard the quote, all that is necessary for evil to triumph is that good men do nothing. But even more so in the church, in the visible church, evil triumphs not because good men do nothing, but because the church compromises with the world. The church cooperates with the world. Historians say that Antiochus was successful in his attack on Jerusalem because there was a fifth column. There were Jews who were seduced. There were Jews who were seduced with flattery. Look at verse 32. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. You see, there are those who sought, well, maybe life will be just a little bit easier under Antiochus. Do we really need to be so religious? Do we really need to be so strict about things? Can't we just bend the commandments a little bit? And the result of that is evil takes sway within the church. You see, corruption in the church is not inevitable. We have gotten to the point where we think it is. Where the church must be corrupt. 
because we see it so often. But it is not the case. It is the decay in the lives of believers, decay in doctrine, decay in morality, decay in spirituality. It is the decay of our being in our midst that allows evil to take place and to enter in and to find a wedge. This is what Daniel is teaching us. The third thing that lesson that we get from history is that God is the Lord of history. He is the Lord of all of history, first of all. Now, we see this in just the, the breadth of all of these predictions. If you have a study Bible or a commentary at home, you can go through and you can find there are incredible details, names, dates, times, all that match up perfectly with Daniel chapter 11. But we have seen this story before in less detail, haven't we? We've seen it in the statue with the head of gold, right? And the middle of silver and bronze and iron. We've seen it before in the prog- progression of the beasts. This is a part of the kingdoms of the world and their goal to destroy the people of God. Because you see, evil never learns its lesson. There is a wonderful little quote from Thomas Akempis. Man proposes, but God disposes. You see, the kingdoms of the earth think that they are in control and think that they can attack and defeat the people of God. But it is God who is the Lord of history. Even in the midst of all of this history, I want you to look for one little word. But it's significant. It's a word that oftentimes we don't like to hear, especially when we want something to go our way. It's the word, but. Look down here with me if you would. We'll just scan. In verse 6, but she shall not retain the strength of her arm. In verse 7, but. In verse 9, but. In verse 11, but. In verse 12, but. In verse 14, but. In verse 18, verse 19, 20, 21, 25, 27, and 29. In each one of these cases, we see something is going to happen, but it doesn't go according to plan. Because you see, who is in control here is God. He is moving history in one direction for his purpose. And all of the Ptolemies and all of the Seleucuses and all of the Antiochuses can do nothing to oppose his will. No matter what tricks they try, what armies they raise, what plots they imagine, they cannot thwart the will of the Lord of history. Now, this is important for you and for me, not because we're going to wake up suddenly one morning and it's 257 B.C., but because the one who is the Lord of history... The Lord of all of history is also the Lord of your history, of every part of your life. And you see, God is working out all of history for us, His people. You see, oftentimes we feel depressed, or we feel oppressed, or we feel 
useless because we think all of history is just swirling around us and we're completely out of control and we are victims of history and we don't know what's going to come next. Will it be a terrorist attack? Will it be peace? Will it be prosperity? Will it be depression? We don't know. We just have to stand by and see what happens. History's in control. And the Bible here in Daniel 11 says, No! God is in control. And He is in control for your good. Kingdoms are raised. Empires fight wars. There are intrigues. There are judgments. All for the people of God. That God might bring about His will. You see, in the scheme of the universe, Alexander the Great is completely unimportant. He is Alex the Small. But you, Christian, are of monumental importance. You are the apple of God's eye. You are His child. He does all of history for you. To gather together to Himself a people that we might worship a risen Savior and that He might be glorified when all of history is done. This is the purpose and meaning of the world. It is found in God's purpose for His people. Lastly, after having seen the glimpse of history and thinking about the lessons that we can learn from history, we can see now the culmination of history. This long stretch of prophecy comes in verse 35 to, excuse me, verse 36, to a different sphere. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. Now, when we first read this sentence, we are tempted to think of Antiochus, who does speak against God and exalts himself as a god. There's a problem here, though. He doesn't exactly do as he wills. One Roman council with no army behind him, just the threat of an army, can draw a circle in the sand and make him do tap dancing. Antiochus really doesn't get to do what he wills. And he, does, he may say he's a god, but he doesn't get to exalt himself above all of the gods in the region. And then as we go forward and we see he shall prosper till, in, till the indignation is accomplished. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of fortresses instead of these. A god whom his father did not know he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. You see, the problem is if we take this as Antiochus, these things don't come true. It's like Daniel's on a hitting streak. He's batting a 1,000. And then over here, now he's hitting about 100. What's going on? And, the, and those who think that the Bible is not true will point at this and say, well, you see, this was written about 150 B.C. And when they knew all the history, they could write the prophecy. But when they had to actually predict things, look at what happens. Because you know, and everybody knows, nobody can predict the future, right? Wrong. You see, what's happening here is there is a shift from type to anti-type. It's like the shift from Joseph to Jesus. 
Or from David to Jesus. Or from Moses as a type of Christ to Jesus. Here we have the type of the Antichrist in Antiochus. The culmination in the Old Testament of the type of the Antichrist. But now here in verse 36, we see Antichrist. We see the culmination of all of history. The one who really does as he wills. Who exalts himself and magnifies himself. And what we see here is Antichrist can be described in certain ways. This is what we see. We see first he is marked by complete autonomy. He will rule himself. He will tell everyone what to do. No one will have any authority over him. Not his father's gods, not other gods. No, he is in complete control. He wants complete autonomy. And that quickly moves then into hostility with God. Look at verse 36. He shall speak astonishing things. We might even say blasphemous things against the God of gods. You see, this is the logical end of autonomy. When we seek to put ourselves up as God, then we must attack God because we must be secure. That's what Antichrist will do. He will attack God because he wishes to be God. But you see, we must be careful too. Because when we desire to be autonomous, when we desire to say to the Lord, Oh, God, don't worry about my job. I've got it from here. I'll handle it. Oh, oh, don't worry about my marriage. We've got a good marriage. I'll take it from here, God. You see, as soon as we start doing that, where we think we are in control of our situations, we begin to blaspheme the living God. We do not trust Him. We do not obey Him. And that hostility to God then leads, in verse 37, to hostility to man in this odd phrase. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. Now, some take this phrase, one beloved by women, to be a certain type of pagan deity like Dionysus or Apollo. But I think it's actually more describing a general terminology. Everyone knows the difference between, in general terms, men and women, right? You've seen it all week. How many times have you turned on the radio or turned on the television and seen an ad for teddy bears, chocolate, flowers, something or other like that? Valentine's Day for a woman is an opportunity to think about love and to show love. And for guys, it's a burden and something we got to do and hope we don't forget and get in trouble. You see here, I think the Bible is speaking about women in those terms, not about women per se, but about the compassion that women are known for, that they bring to a family. And you see, the Antichrist will not only be against God, he will be against man. He will have no tenderness in his kingdom. Everything will be iron. There will be no pillows. There will be no blankets. There will be no kind words. There will be whips and taunts and rules and regulations. And so we see that the further we get from God, the further we get from love and compassion. This is the kind of hostility we see. The last thing we see here is that the, the Antichrist is described in the terms that might makes right. You can see he almost worships war. His God is a God of fortresses. 
And this is, if we are honest, this is where our world is coming to today, not merely amongst nations, but in neighborhoods. Who gets their way? Whoever's the most powerful. Now, we may have moved beyond he-men and clubs, but it's whoever has the most money, whoever has the nastiest lawyer, whoever has the trickiest accountant. Might makes right. This is anti-Christ. Jesus is not about might. He is about submission, obedience, grace. This is what we see. How then should we think about history? Well, briefly, we should think about history as expressing the principle of God's sovereignty, as we have said. That the focus of history is upon the people of God. We should know that history is about our lives and that we are the ones who are significant. And at the same time, it helps us to put our troubles in perspective. Remember that this entire passage is an answer to Daniel's prayer in chapter 10, in which Daniel is saying, things are miserable. We can't get the temple rebuilt. We're experiencing persecution. And it's almost as if God says, this is not exceptional. As a matter of fact, worse is coming down the pike. And I say tenderly to you, Christians, you may think it's horrible when textbooks do not have any mention of God. You may think it's horrible when there's no prayer in a public school. You may think it's horrible when you are quieted in the workplace. But it can get much, much worse than that. You can live in the Sudan and your children can be kidnapped and sold into slavery. You can live in India and be set on fire. You can live in China and be tortured. And those things may come here. And so it helps us to put in perspective that these are not unusual occurrences and they do not entail the loss of God. The last thing that we see is how we should act in light of history. Three things. First, we must believe. We must believe what God has written is true. And believing that, we must teach it. It is not enough to know the truth. We must teach the truth. Because if we do not teach the truth, who will? How will the world know? How will the world know about compassion? How will the world know about God's sovereignty? Secondly, we must resist. You will notice here that some, re some compromise. They are seduced with flattery. But there are others who know their God, verse 32, and who take a stand. The people of God must stand against the spirit of Antichrist. Remember that there is no real power in Antichrist. Fear him, our Lord says, who can cast the soul into hell, not him who can kill the body. The last thing, that we should act by trusting and praying to the Lord. God is using history to refine us. That's what he says here in verse 35. It is done that they may be refined, purified, made white until the appointed end. You know the saying that says, all good things must come to an end? All bad things must come to an end. God is in charge. He is refining his people. And he is bringing them to glory. This is the entire meaning of history.